I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. A familiar face, or voice I should say, is joining us today in Dementia Matters. Dr. Carl Hill is the Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for the Alzheimer's Association, and he previously served as the Director of the Office of Special Populations at the National Institutes of Aging, NIA. In 2019, Dr. Hill was a guest on Dementia Matters and talked with me about improving healthcare access to elders from diverse racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds. In this episode, we will continue that discussion and talk more about the importance of diversity in Alzheimer's disease research. Welcome back to Dementia Matters, Dr. Hill. Oh, it's so great to be here with you, Dr. Chen. It's okay if I call you Carl. Please do. Please. All do. right. So, Carl, I think it's important we start with definitions because these topics that we're going to talk about are complex and at times can be charged. So I'm going to ask you to please define for us in your own terms, diversity, equity, equality, and an underrepresented group. Yeah, I tell you, you, you're so right, Dr. Chen. This is a time when we're really considering uh, social justice, and it's just important to be clear on, you know, what we're all pursuing here. And, and so, you know, in my mind, when we think of, you know, diversity, I think of a numerical representation of differences or different perspectives, characteristics or beliefs. And, you know, what immediately comes to mind from a diversity uh, lens is, uh, you, know, you know, groups of people who are disproportionately affected or underserved or you know, underrepresented, you know, so who's at the table and who's not, right? And, and that, that's how I think of, of diversity. Moving on to inclusion, you know, it's this authentic, and the key word here is authentic, but I, you know, I think an authentic invitation or a way to bring people to, to, to the table. That's being intentional in uh, identifying, uh, you know, those individuals who are disproportionately affected, underrepresented, and, you know, understudied, and, you know, doing something about it in an, you know, in an authentic way. And, and so that leads us to, to equity and equality, right? And so equality is, you know, using that authentic intention and being sure that everyone gets the same invitation or we approach, you know, everyone's risk pathway with the same importance, or, you know, we can be equitable about it. And this is why I really think we have an opportunity here. That is to to tailor the ways that we might invite underrepresented communities to participate in a clinical trial or to tailor our outreach uh, to communities that are underserved and disproportionately affected. So I, I think the equity perspective is really taking the time to assess, you know, how to get resources or, you know, invitations, recruitment, et cetera, to communities in a way that they can be uh, best received and, and really thinking about, you know, sociocultural factors that could uh, serve as enablers or, you know, serve as barriers and, and really addressing that type of equity by understanding those opportunities. And then how do you define, especially in our field of Alzheimer's disease and related diseases, underrepresented group? It seems like a very broad term. It is broad. It is broad. You know, and, and when we think of uh, our opportunity with the Alzheimer's Association, we have over 70 chapters 
all around the country in major urban areas and in rural areas. And so we have a real opportunity to get resources to communities. And you know, when we think about health disparities or communities that are disproportionately affected, there are ways to think of uh, about addressing these disparities. And so there's a theme or a term, you know, resources that, that could represent opportunities and, you know, tangible information that is, you know, contextual and that's also delivered at the individual level as well. You know, but the Alzheimer's Association, uh, we have a free nationwide helpline, you know, so being sure that all communities know about the helpline is staffed by master's level clinicians and specialists delivered in over 200 languages. We conduct face-to-face and uh, virtual support groups. You know, we have an online community forum. We have support for caregivers. You know, we have an online tool to help families facing a diagnosis. So, so we have so many resources that we can deliver. You know, underrepresented for us means those communities that aren't taking advantage of our resources, or better put, that we aren't engaging enough to deliver our resources and deliver on our on our mission, um, you know, in leading the way to to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia uh, by accelerating research, driving risk reduction, and and maximizing care and support. So, underrepresented from the association's perspective is, you know, those communities that traditionally, historically, we have not served well, but also, you know, underrepresented. Uh, populations can include those that aren't being recruited into clinical trials, you know, and that is a very important part of information that we like to deliver to to communities. Um, so, you know, you know, understanding who's un- underrepresented in these clinical trials is so important to have representation in clinical trials because that's the way, as you know, Dr. Chan, uh, that we determine that treatments are safe and effective in all communities, particularly those that are disproportionately affected, right? And so, you know, the equity lens here is to recruit families and individuals in, in, in these trials, you know, with some knowledge of the sociocultural factors that can you know, serve as enablers and potential barriers, right? So taking a real community level approach to understand these so that the recruitment, um, you know, has a chance to be uh, successful. I, you know, I, I gave you an example. We have a community theater. It's called Unforgettable. And we partner with uh, Garrett Davis Productions. And, you know, this is an opportunity for, in this case, uh, Black African-Americans to come out and get dressed up. It's open to anyone, but cast is primarily Black or African-American. And, you know, in this community theater, people are entertained. Uh, they are provided information and discussion of, around the importance of participating in clinical trials. And so, the information is conveyed in a different way. I think there's a there's some merit in giving lectures and talks and and delivering the information that way. Uh, but this infotainment or edutainment is a way to to get the word out in a way that could be culturally responsive to some to some people. Well, so then, Carl, you know, using these definitions that you've you've so nicely laid out for us, how is the Alzheimer's disease field doing overall with diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly when it comes to participants in studies like the clinical trials you just mentioned, but also scientists and staff conducting those studies. 
We we have so much work to do, uh, Dr. Chen, and I understand that we're at a place where we're all coming to grips with level setting on the importance of these concepts. But we know uh, African Americans two times more likely to have Alzheimer's or another dementia uh, when compared to whites. Hispanic Latinos also one and a half times more likely. Uh, there's such a critical shortage of representation in uh, clinical trials among these populations that are disproportionately affected, right? So that puts us in an ethical justice place where, you know, the people who are more likely to have Alzheimer's or another dementia are not being recruited into the studies. That really, you know, motivates an urgency, you know, to do more, you know. And so there has been, you know, an addition of Funding at the NIH level, the Alzheimer's Association has advocated for more research funding, so there's opportunity to do more. And, you know, now we're really depending on researchers and, you know, policymakers, community engagement specialists to all come together to really think of, you know, what inclusion can look like. You know, what what does recruitment science look like? You know, what does health equity, you know, really look like from the Alzheimer's Association and getting these resources to the communities who need it most? So, so much work to do, uh, you know, more resources to do it. It's just aligning on, you know, what needs to be done. I give you an example. We have uh, the Alzheimer's Association is advocating for the ENACT Act, and that's, uh, you know, Equity in Neuroscience and Clinical Trials Act. And so, you know, Congress representatives, you know, are you know, really considering whether they would support this act. And it would provide you know, resources, money to the Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers to really you know, hone in on their community engagement, to taking money and evaluating what works uh, for better representation in, in clinical trials. You know, maybe even, you know, prioritizing uh, neurologists and, you know, other scientists that conduct this work that come from these communities. You know, really thinking about the training of of these underrepresented scientists in this area, right? And so just one example, but, you know, if the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center Network is, in my opinion, you know, one of the uh, best products of the increased funding at the federal level for Alzheimer's research, you know, really, you know, leveraging that network of research centers around the country, getting them resources so that they could do better engagement and really understand how best to be inclusive in an equitable way for uh, more representative Alzheimer's and dementia science that may also address disparities that we see in dementia. So you've mentioned resources and funding and then having a network to improve uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. Are there other barriers that we know about that are getting in the way of us getting to true representation? Well, you know, the, the sense of belonging is so important. You know, in, at the Alzheimer's Association, we have such a focus on equity. It, it is a part of uh, every pillar of our organization. The next step is getting everyone to understand that they have agency and to give people confidence to do the work. Right. And so we think about structural racism. We know historically there, you know, there are factors that have just kept African-Americans and Hispanic Latinos, American Indian and Alaska Natives from being trained in all sorts of fields. Right. And so, you know, we, we do all that we can to recruit and to have better representation among our staff at the Alzheimer's Association and our volunteers. 
it is a real challenge. You know, so the other path we take is to be sure that everyone's trained in working this way and, and you know, understanding their unconscious biases or, you know, being able to you know, discuss these terms, diversity, equity, and inclusion with confidence. And so, you know, one barrier that we're really considering now is, you know, giving people the agency and confidence to do the work. You know, to do the equity work, and that is a that 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 is an opportunity uh, for us because, as an example, I you know I tell you we we have staff and volunteers who are supportive, um, but you wouldn't know so because you know maybe they they remain quiet you know and respectful in times that we want them to to to, to become leaders and to feel confident about lead, become, being leaders and helping us getting you know those resources to communities that need it most, and so. That, that's a real opportunity. It's inclusion and focusing in on um, belonging and delivering confidence and agency uh, to our staff and volunteers to really uh, help with our DEI momentum. And when you talk about agency and, and confidence and a belonging, I, I, that can also apply to the communities, right, that we're trying to engage with and empowering them to speak up and interact with and collaborate with researchers. And that leads to my next question, because I hear a lot about community-based participatory research. It's a mouthful, but you know, what is this from your perspective, and how important is it in this space of DEI in, in Alzheimer's disease research? I, you know, I, I think community-based participatory research is really important here. You know, it represents you know, a number of strategies, you know, to, to engage communities, to empower communities, uh, to join the effort, various ways that CBPR has been used in the public health literature, you know, really focuses in, Dr. Chen, on engagement and maximizing trust. I always say trust can't be quantified. You know, there's not a time on building trust. It is a process, you know, so community-based participatory uh, research really prioritizes building participatory teams, representatives from you know various parts of a community. Not all researchers, not all politicians, or you know leaders in any one particular sector, but those that represent the community and essentially want what's best for the community. And so, you know, you know, you know as I've seen it, the best CBPR really acknowledges history. Uh, you know, there, there may be historical factors that have you know, led to, you know, for example, you know, why there is a, you know, you know, not adequate representation in clinical trials or from the Alzheimer's Association, why we have not been able to serve uh, various communities in the ways that we would like to. So really acknowledging um, history uh, and then, you know, finding a place of, uh, of, of trust, uh, identifying resources that could be helpful um, having this participatory team review those resources, making sure that they are culturally appropriate and relevant. Uh, maybe you know even training community members to deliver uh, the resources. You know, so so there's a, there are a number of ways to to use CBPR. You know, I think that the take home here, Dr. Chen, uh, is that it it's not a one size fits all, right? And so you know the term the word participatory means that, you know, the effort is informed, you know, by the community. It's informed by the stakeholders. And that may look different. That may look different in Milwaukee than how it looks in Waukesha, right? And, and really acknowledging that, 
you know, those differences are, you know, what could eventually make the, the project positive and could make it work, quite frankly, right? So really identifying those factors that could be helpful and doing that, you know, with a team-based participatory approach. All right, Carl, so I'm going to ask you a question now that's going to pull at you from your current position with the Alzheimer's Association, with your former position working with the NIA. And that's because it's going to take more effort, more intention, more authenticity to reach populations that have historically not been involved in research. And like you just said, there's not a time frame to that. There is a lot of effort to build trust, to build transparency. However, grant cycles are five years. And, and so I wonder... How do researchers build this? How do researchers engage with communities knowing that they have at most five years of funding? And that seems like a very, it seems like a big barrier to the research side of it. And so I'm wondering what you think is a way or have been other ways that have been successful in actually reaching underreached populations. I do believe that the NIH and CDC, they, they do have mechanisms that allow for longer you know, grant periods, grant cycles. And so yeah, at the Alzheimer's Association, we would advocate for you know, those opportunities where researchers can really develop community engagement teams and do the work of establishing trust. So, so there are opportunities there, Dr. Chan, but you know, over and beyond that, there's other funding. You know, there's funding at the at the state level, at the city level, with organizations like the Alzheimer's Association to help, you know, with establishing uh, this type of community-based uh, participatory engagement. So my, you know, my answer would be to diversify, to really think of, you know, other means of, you know, funding projects. You know, if, if we take on take it from the researchers' uh, perspective, but also encouraging uh, project officials at age and at CDC, you know, to understand that this work, you know, really demands, you know, the time that it takes to to develop uh, trust. And that, you know, you, you don't just develop trust, Dr. Chen, and, and it's there. You know, you move on to collecting data. You know, it's an ongoing process. It's a way of providing resources to communities that may not even be related to your research project, right? And so, I do think that we have to think of community engagement as, you know, an ongoing concurrent activity to research projects. And I've I've seen uh, several during my time at, at NIH, you know, several academic institutions that had you know, pretty rigorous community engagement divisions. And so they were always out in the community you know, with employment uh, information, health related information, bringing research results back to the community. You know, but having a real stake in the community to not only develop, but maintain, you know, trust is really important in this way. Yeah, thank you for answering that, Carl. And I, and I think that's so critical that this is not a single intervention or a five-year intervention. This is a long-term process of true collaboration and engagement with people. But I'm glad to know that there are, you're right, there are other ways of getting that funding um, so that researchers can do the work that's needed and, and truly connect with the people that we're trying to serve. Yeah, I, I want to pivot here and ask a little bit more about the diversity 
in, in the research looking at diversity specifically. And the reason I ask that is because more and more we talk about Alzheimer's disease as this biological process that's happening in the brain. And humans in general are over 99% genetically similar. So then why does diversity matter in Alzheimer's disease if we're, if we're looking at the biology of it? So important. Yeah, I, I tell you, and this is going back, as you said, to the uh, verse pathways of risk. Uh, I think of this question as uh, being really focused on uh, dementia. You know, you know, certainly Alzheimer's is the most common form or, or cause of dementia, but there are other causes uh, that link to frontal temporal dementia, Lewy body dementia, uh, vascular dementia, which is quite compelling from my perspective because it calls into, you know, the life course perspective, right? And so if cardiovascular health uh, is important, you know, many cardiovascular factors are important for uh, vascular dementia, the development of vascular dementia, then we start thinking of uh, stress and coping or, you know, the way where people, you know, live and their access to, you know, healthy foods and opportunities for physical activity, right? And so this life course approach is so so important uh, when we think of this, you know, diversity uh, in, you know, pathways to risk, right? And so, you know, you know, really important to think of it um, in that way. And, and it, you know, it calls into racial discrimination. We had some, some really good presentations during our Alzheimer's Association uh, International Conference just this past year that, you know, took a look at perceptions of discrimination and, you know, memory uh, decline. You know, and, and how, you know, maybe stress plays a role, you know, in that. And so I think, yes, humans are 99.9% genetically s- similar, but people live different lives and people have different histories in this country. People perceive stress and cope with stress differently and people endure different stressors like racial discrimination that others don't. So understanding all of that uh, from a life course perspective and how that equates to risk for Alzheimer's and other dementia is very important for health disparities research. And so, Carl, is it, is it safe for me to say then when you, when you speak of this life course and, and stressors as an example and, and experiences with racism as an example, are you speaking then to this term of social determinants of health, the factors beyond this environment how you how you were raised, your education, how you live, how you pray, how you eat. Is, are you speaking to that component then? Absolutely, Dr. Chan. And, you know, during my time at the National Institute on Aging, uh, we really took some time to carve out what we thought were levels of analysis with these uh, social determinants of health, if you will, knowing that there are many, uh, you know, biological factors that relate to aging or specifically for Alzheimer's and dementia, plaques and tangles, genetic risk, amyloid and tau, you know, those are the, you know, biological factors that are, you know, most relevant here. But then, you know, moving almost to the, to the left and thinking of individual level factors that could you know, really influence those biological factors. And that is maybe health behavior or choices that people make with their nutrition could influence their cardiovascular health, their lack of physical activity. So many individual level health behaviors, decisions that people make are important. But, you know, the social determinants of health model really contextualizes behavior. This is, has always been so intriguing to me. 
you know, and that is that there are, you know, resources, opportunities, stressors that influence uh, the decisions that people make that ultimately can affect, you know, these biological outcomes, right? And so uh, there's culture, you know, we talked about norms and values or religion, you know, all, all the things that, you know, people believe in and they believe in these factors uh, to sustain themselves as part of their community, as part of their culture. You know, these are strong beliefs and norms that could influence their health behaviors, right? And so there's a you know, sociocultural part of this. And then there's the environment, right? And so, you know, where people live and, you know, just their sheer access to resources, their access to quality health care, their access to income and information about employment. And sometimes it's just where people live. When we think about the United States, people have endured redlining and housing discrimination. And so people live in these places where they they might endure risk related to, you know, asthma and cardiovascular determinants. And so, you know, thinking of, you know, social determinants of health has led me to ponder context. And that's environmental factors, how they link to culture, norms and beliefs. And we know it's so important to belong. Right. And so belonging means that for many people, we adopt cultural beliefs of any particular group. And so how does that all come together to play out in ways where people enact certain behaviors and, you know, help seeking behaviors, going to the doctor or nutrition, physical activity, all these all these health behaviors. And then ultimately how uh, that, you know, gets under the skin, if you will, and influences the amyloid and plaque and neurodegeneration that we we know characterize Alzheimer's and, and other dementias. So that that pathway, in my mind, represents the social determinants of health. And in the research on social determinants of health, as we identify these pathways, you know, what are your key takeaways? What are places where we need more intervention? What is that intervention? How can we help the people that we're studying? Well, we, we need multi-level interventions, and this this is really, you know, the tough part because I, I do believe that uh, individuals uh, can take information and use that information uh, to protect their health. I still believe that I'm able to receive an invitation to go in and get some information about, you know, caregiving, and I would utilize that. But, but we've got to acknowledge that not everyone has the same opportunities and in the same ways. And, you know, many of these interventions should focus on, you know, policy level change, you know, know, providing resources, for example, for more health disparities research at the NIH and at the CDC, or even, you know, more regulation for for having more representation in clinical trials. You know, using this example, yes, certainly, for, for sure, you know, we'd like to, you know, knock on doors and ask people to participate in clinical trials. But because of some of the history, you know, we know that people may not trust that participation or they, they just may not have the time during the day to participate, you know, or the clinical trial is being run at an academic center across town and people just don't have the means to get over there, right? So understanding that is is so important. And, and maybe in that example, intervening at, you know, the policy level to provide better resources so that Alzheimer's disease research centers can do the upstream work 
uh, in understanding the best ways to get underrepresented communities in these trials, right? And so I think the interventions must be multi-level and acknowledging and maybe even prioritizing, you know, those social factors, those contextual factors, you know, those environmental factors that could be fundamental for addressing the, uh, the disparities or lack of representation that we see uh, in, in this area. Well, I'm glad you mentioned clinical trials because I want to end our discussion today with a fairly controversial topic of drug therapies. And so the FDA approved a particular drug that was shown to be possibly effective. And the science uh, now seems to be that it, it could actually be effective. However, one of the big complaints was that it did not represent the United States population and that there was a very small percentage of people of color or under-resourced environments. And so different groups came out either for it or against it and really just depended on where you were. And I'd like to ask you for your take on this. And I would also like you to answer or try to answer a question of should we be mandating true representation in a clinical therapeutic study before that study can actually begin or publish their results? Yes, you know, really good question, Dr. Chan. Yes, I think you know, we should be regulating uh, representation in trials. I think the FDA should be considering this representation as they provide approval for these trials. Uh, so that's very important for that question. This was a, you know, a really interesting time in our field. You know, I really thought of it as, as perspective, um, you know, based on the organization that you represent or how you work in this field. I, you know, I, I thought of my time at NIH our, you know, real commitment to the peer review process, Dr. Chen, that one particular uh, treatment, uh, Educanumab, you know, knowing very little support for, you know, that particular treatment with the FDA uh, peer review process, you know, really, you know, had me think about this in, in a particular way. But since I've been with the Alzheimer's Association, I, you know, have really come to grasp patient perspective. And so absolutely, there was little representation in this trial, which is disappointing. And it's disappointing for the reasons that we mentioned before, safety and efficacy, you know, and not being to assure communities of, you know, both of those with because of the very low representation in the trial. You know, but the equity perspective is access. And so when CMS decided to not cover this particular treatment, I thought it went against the equity uh, perspective. And it, and it does not mean that this particular treatment is for everyone. You know, talking to your doctor, the ultimate decision may be because of the lack of representation, this is not a good treatment for you and your family, right? You know, but cost should not be a barrier to accessing FDA-approved treatment. And, and I, I think the equity perspective is to have the opportunity to talk about this, you know, with your doctor and to determine, and, and your family, quite frankly, to determine whether it's right for you. And if that determination is made, cost should not be the barrier. Well, Nat, thank you, Dr. Carl Hill, for being on this very interesting podcast on, on DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Thank you so much, Dr. Chen. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Or tell your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. Please rate us on your favorite podcast app. 
It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes on Aging for Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Amy Lambright-Murphy and Kaylin Rowerdink and edited by Hao Meng Meng. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.